we want to look at the whole canon um, and read the Bible on its own terms, but we have to ask, what kind of book is the Bible? Um, so I want to suggest that it's a story. It's a meta narrative. It's a true story that tells the story of the world, and it gives us a script to live by. Um, so let's let's think about this, starting with narrative and interpretation. My what I'm going to try to show you here is that narrative stories and interpretation go hand in hand. They're they're reciprocal. So um, drawing from Tolkien's The Hobbit is a good place to start here. Listen to this exchange between Bilbo and Gandalf. Good morning, said Bilbo, and he meant it. The sun was shining and the grass was very green, but Gandalf looked at him from under long, bushy eyebrows that stuck out further than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he said. Do you wish me a good morning, or mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not, or that you feel good this morning, or that it is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, said Bilbo, and a very fine morning for a pipe of tobacco out of doors into the bargain. After some unpleasant conversation about adventures, these nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things, Bilbo starts to read his morning letters, pretending that Gandalf is no longer there, but Gandalf doesn't leave, so Bilbo says, good morning, at last. We don't want any adventures over here, thank you. You might try over the hill or across the water. By this he meant that the conversation was at an end. What a lot of things you do use good morning for, said Gandalf. Now you mean that you want to get rid of me and that it won't be good till I move off. <laughs> well, this interaction shows us how meaning and, and story and interpretation all go together. I mean, in this children's story, the, the very introduction is hinting that much of this story is going to re require interpretation along the way. And confusion and, and misunderstanding is humorous. That's, that's why it works well in this children's story. But the rest of The Hobbit has this major idea that interpretation really does matter in that words and events are not self-interpreting. So whether it's the contract that Bilbo works out with the, the dwarves or his riddles with Gollum on, you know, in, in the mountain or the ring itself is an ultimate riddle, interpretation is required for narrative. You have to interpret what's going on in the story. But even more than that, we can look at this, this story as an interpretation of what's going on in the world. It's, so reading this narrative, The Hobbit, isn't really an escape from reality. It's an escape into reality. And you can read hundreds of interpretations of what Tolkien is trying to do in The Hobbit. Is he, as a, a guy who served during one of the world wars, commenting on his experience in the world? You know, our orcs, the, the, the Nazi soldiers. Well, a lot of people will read Lord of the Rings and say this is a, a soldier's narrative interpreting the events of the world as he experienced it. So his there's interpretive going, interpretation going on in the narrative. His narrative functions perhaps as an interpretation of the world in his moments. Uh, but then more than that, we read it and say, man, we, we could read books called The Gospel According to Tolkien as we look at the larger story of the world from, from creation creation to consummation being being shown in this narrative. So do you see how interpretation and narrative kind of mumble jumble together and you can't have one without the other and narratives interpret the world but they also are in need of interpretation. Does this make sense? Okay. 
it should maybe bring us to the cusp of saying it doesn't make sense because it's so involved and reciprocal um, to say that a narrative interprets things, but that also that narrative is in need of interpretation. But that's the way that story works. Okay, And I, I want to point out that I think the Bible does this exact thing. The Bible is a narrative that is in need of interpretation, but it also stands as an interpretation of events in the world. It's a theological interpretation of events. Um, so I want to draw your attention to the book of Ruth as a good case study for this conundrum or really the creative nature of interpretation. So in the book of Ruth, at the end of chapter one, Ruth has, uh, or Naomi has returned to Bethlehem after her family has died, right? Elimelech and Malon and Kilian have all died. And we put that in the covenantal framework of um, they, they should have repented and returned to the Lord. They left during a famine, which what's a promise for those who disobey the covenant? Well, well famine will be in the land. And, and we understand that when they departed, uh, they missed out the visitation of God upon the land when he provided them with food. Uh, so Naomi hears about this. She ends up returning. And there's a question of, is her return a return of repentance or is it just a return to the location? Um, is, has she actually repented and come out of her self-imposed exile or, or is she still separated from God in a sense? Okay, so she gets back. She's talking to the ladies of the city. And we're going to hear her interpretation of the events that have occurred. She says from her perspective that the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full. Okay, there's a, a spelling error. But the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So in this narrative, Naomi is interpreting her experiences in the world. But... That's a question that this whole story points out is, is she interpreting her experience correctly? Because at the end of the story, the women of the city speak to her and they say they interpret her life story this way. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You see two very distinct interpretations of Naomi's life. Well, we can agree with the women of the city and disagree with Naomi as we see this story play out. And, and we recognize that the way that you interpret the events of your life has ramifications for your core identity. She tells them, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. That's what that means. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. I've interpreted my life this way, and now, because I've, I've told myself a story, I'm going to embody that story as I live out my days in bitterness. So, so the narrative is an interpretation, but it's an interpretation that requires interpretation, but then welcomes embodiment, or, or it calls us, it draws us into it, and we live it out. Now, the way that this works in the Bible is we get this story, and we start to say Naomi should interpret her life differently, but this story functions not just as an investigation into Naomi's interpretation of her own life, but into Israel's interpretation of their national life in history. So Ruth is likely written during the exile um, or perhaps soon after they return from exile. And Israel's asking a question, I think, or whoever wrote this is saying, look, Israel, you look a lot like Naomi. 
maybe you have returned to the land, but have you actually returned to the God of your land? And, and how should you interpret your exile? And how should you interpret what God's demand is on you going forward? Well, you can see the lines that are drawn in parallel between Naomi and Israel. And this story of Naomi's life becomes a story of Israel's history and the kind of story that gives them a script to live by going forward. So Naomi doesn't say another word at the end of this story, but we as readers know what we want her to say. Blessed be the Lord. We want her to start quoting things that we hear in the psalm. Blessed be the Lord who doesn't abandon the widow or the orphan. These sorts of things. Well, we know this is a story that Israel needs to enter into. So even though Israel's been returned to the land after the exile, we recognize only like the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and Levi have returned. And it seems like God is not with them yet. So what do they need to do? They need to truly return to the Lord. So this becomes a script for Israel to live their national life by. But beyond that, it becomes a story of the larger world, doesn't it? We, we can look backward and see the work that God does through Ruth and Naomi, say he's reversing or setting right the brokenness of Judah and Tamar, um, the, the great-grandparents, right, or, or parents of, uh, of Boaz. So where, where Boaz comes genetically through the sin of Judah with, this, with his daughter-in-law Tamar, well, it's being reversed here. And where uh, Ruth has her family in national history with Lot and his daughter is, is the father and mother of the Moabites, there's a reversal of history that's going on there. And then as we read forward from there, we see Jesus coming out of that line. And we start to learn things like we, we need a redeemer and God will be faithful to provide one. We learn things like we can have a messed up family history and find redemption in Jesus. We can read things like you can have a great family history like David who, who looked at Boaz who maintained purity in the dead of night when this woman comes to him and you can fail to maintain that purity when you go out and you see sin and enforce this lady that she has to come. So we read this story is contributing to the larger story of the Bible and, and it gave Naomi a script to live her life by, it gives Israel a script to live their life by, and it gives us a script to live our lives by. Does this make sense? But this story is not self-interpreting, because the interpretation that I offered of the book of Ruth just now is not the interpretation that everyone's going to offer of the book of Ruth. Um, there, there are dozens of commentaries on the book of Ruth, and some will, will very much disagree with what I've just told. it with our ideas and our own stories that help us interpret or misinterpret the stories that we read in the Bible. But we have to fundamentally wrestle with the Bible as story. Comments or questions up to this point? Okay. Um, you might think that's interesting, but story is not really the way that humans find meaning or interpret events. You might say, um, that's a nice isolated incident, but can we really say that you and I find identity and meaning um, through narrative? Uh, and I want to suggest that we both um, describe our 
events and identities with narrative, but then also we look at that as the thing that gives us future definition as we enter into those stories. So I'm, I'm going to read this example from this guy, N.T. Wright, talking about how even in the most mundane of ways, stories interpret life and they give us a way forward. So he says this, I'm driving, a, and he's, the spelling is British here, so I've had other spelling errors, but these are correct. Um, I'm driving along the road, thinking about all sorts of things, but taking for granted an underlying story about cars driving in roads. Do you, I mean, think about that. As soon as you get into your car, you have an underlying story in your mind about the way cars work and the way roads work and driving. That you have this under narrative, storied understanding of even these things. The car then begins to shudder. At once, I begin to tell myself a variety of stories which might explain this phenomenon. It, you know, it's not, I wonder what, the, like, I, I don't start articulating the laws of, of science that might, you know, explain shuddering of a car. We start telling ourselves a story. I've done this recently on uh, 494 and all that construction zone when my car started to shudder. Like, oh man, I do need to get the shocks changed on this car. But also there's another story of 494 is under a lot of road construction. Maybe it's that. And that's the kind of thing he's about to talk about here. Um, I begin to tell myself a variety of stories which might explain this phenomenon. Perhaps the council has been digging up this bit of road and has not yet smoothed it out again. Perhaps I have a flat tire. Perhaps there's something wrong with the suspension. These hypotheses offer themselves to me as potential missing links within the stories. When inserted appropriately, they turn my habitual stories into would-be explanatory stories. So we start to tell ourselves a story that makes sense of our experience. Where they themselves come to come from is just difficult to describe. It's difficult to, for us to articulate where do our backstories come from? What, you know, how did we arrive at these things? Um, but resuming the illustration, the car behind me flashes its lights and the driver points at one of my wheels. At once, the second story looms larger. I pull over and examine the tire, which sure enough is looking decidedly sorry for itself. Um, two further bits of data namely the action of the driver and the sight of the tire convinced me that the second story meshes with reality. So that narrative is true. Of course, there may also be something less than perfect with the road and, and the suspension, but the simplest explanation is that the shuddering was caused by the flat tire. At each stage of the process, what matters can, be best, can best be expressed in terms of story. The story which prompts the question, the new stories which offer themselves an explanation, and the success of one of these stories in including all the relevant data, doing so with a clear and simple framework and contributing to a better understanding of other stories. You know, and then there's this additional story. I was always just a bit suspicious of the garage where I bought those tires. Maybe this was a skeevy tire dealer who I bought, bought these from. And I always kind of felt that way. So th it all makes sense. And so... I think you can relate whenever some you hear maybe of a relative where something bad happens or you know you you learn of your cousin who's now in jail or something you start to tell yourself oh yeah I remember when he was running around he was always a little bit devious he was always you know stealing cookies out of the cookie jar and last time we interacted he was kind of suspicious he wouldn't tell me what was going on in his life and we start to construct a story that makes sense of the evidence until we might hear other pieces of data that don't fit in the story so, so then you might hear that, oh, I, that other relative told me that he's in jail in Afghanistan 
And actually, I didn't know this, but he went off to Bible college, and, and he became a pastor and a missionary, and he's in jail, but not in the way that I thought he was in jail. And there's a different story that tells a better story that makes more sense of the data. And what we start to realize is even as we talk about ourselves, answering a simple question like, who are you? You can't do it without a story. You might try to distract from the truth or from the a full account by saying, I'm an accountant or I'm, I'm a, you know, bike manufacturer or something like that. Um, we might give job titles, but those are just one piece of, of the story. It's not the story. We have to tell a story. And then the more we do that, when, when you move that conversation from the back of a lobby to your home after dinner, you have to start to fill in more details that expand the story to, to include the story in which the it other stories take place. So your story of being an accountant might expand to where you went to college while you're here, but then it might expand even further as you talk about your childhood and where you came from and all these other things. Our identities are interpreted and explained through story. And as we tell ourselves a story, whether true or less than true, we start to embody that story and we start to live by a story. Um, that's why we can, um, if, if you've never listened to this guy's podcast, Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell, Revisionist History, one of my favorite episodes is when he's talking about this news reporter who um, lied essentially about being on an, a helicopter during an attack when he, he wasn't on there. But the way that memory works is we start telling ourselves a story and with no, you know, devious or, you know, demonic sort of intentions, we can start to believe a different story inch by inch, bit by bit, and then it shapes our identity, um, even though that story might not be true. So stories, my, my point here is that stories interpret and then they must be interpreted, but they also provide a way that we move forward as, as we embody that story and take it to the next scene. Does this make sense? Like I said, this is maybe a little bit of the most out there of lessons, but I think it's important for us to try to grasp onto these things and think about them a little bit more. Um, stories provide a framework for experiencing the world. That's, that's what I've been trying to say here. But they also provide the framework for challenging someone's experience of the world. But the story that the women told Naomi was a different story than the, the, the one that Naomi told herself. And it directly challenged her story. Instead of the Almighty being against her and abandoning her, there's a story where, where actually the Almighty didn't abandon her. From one angle, that might have a grain of truth to it, but that's not the full story. And, and the way to challenge that story is by telling a different one. And in fact, that's what we find the Bible does for us. The Bible is a meta-narrative, uh, a story that explains all the other stories, that challenges them, subverts them, and provides a better story. Um, and there are various ways about talking about the story of the Bible. What is the story of the Bible? And the, in its most fundamental form, we could talk about this movement from creation to sin to redemption and, and then the future um, consummation, we might say, or new creation or something like that. But there's this larger story that's being told that explains and makes sense of the smaller stories that we experience in our lives. 
And as, as we tell that story, it counteracts other stories of the world that are being told elsewhere. Um, so there's, there's a story of the world that's told um, in certain history books or, or in scientific models of thinking or other religions. And the way to challenge those stories is not by making a you know, proposition or something like that, but it's by telling a different and better and bigger story. Um, one book that might introduce you to this, if you haven't thought about it, is a little book by, by Jim Hamilton called What is Biblical Theology? A Guide to the Bible Story, Symbolism, and Patterns. I showed this one last week. It's really, really small, but I think it's a really good introduction to it. The other one I referenced last week is From Eden to the New Jerusalem by T. Desmond Alexander, another small one that I think is really, really helpful. And what they start to show is that the Bible gives us a story to live our lives by. We could talk about this story in a variety of ways. I like the way Alexander starts where he moves from uh, temple garden to temple city, from Genesis to Revelation. And even the fact that the beginning and end of the Bible cohere so closely, there's, there's a story that we pick up on that goes on in between these two things. Uh, so I would recommend picking up those things. Um, but we should ask then, what's the benefit of observing the biblical story? First, and this is on page six if you want to find it, observing the biblical story helps us position individual texts within a larger framework, providing fruitful avenues of reflection and constraints for interpretation. So the point there is that we can interpret and understand the smaller parts in light of the larger story, regardless of what narrative or literary genre those parts might fall into. We can interpret and understand the epistles and the Psalms and the Proverbs and everything else better when we have a, a view of the whole and, and when we can put it into this story progression, we understand that changes happen within the story. And so we start to realize we need to read these individual units of text in light of the larger picture and we need to place them properly. Um, and that, that's what will help us navigate the Old Testament law and, and then understand what Jesus says when he oddly says, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to become the law. But, but then he goes on and, and teaches his disciples not to obey the law. Are you destroying the law? Well, we, we read this within a story that makes sense of the oddities along the way. And I, I'd suggest we're, we're not going to be able to make sense of the Bible outside of putting it into this narrative framework. So, so it helps us in that way. Um, but there's a danger there, and that is to say, if I've, if I've kind of marked out the main features of this story, can I dispense with whatever books or texts um, don't seem to contribute much to that story? So can we get rid of Song of Solomon and never preach it because it doesn't seem like it contributes that much to the story? Well, the answer is no. You know, so that's one danger is we can start to create a canon within the canon and pick and choose what we think is necessary for the story. But that, again, if we understand stories rightly, we realize we can't do that. So in the same way that I can't read The Hobbit and skip through the songs of the dwarves at the very beginning and still get The Hobbit as a story. Now, someone might argue, well, you can just dispense with that and put a principle there. But that's not true. Because th there is a thing that the story does to you that's missing when you don't listen to the song of the dwarves when they're sitting in, in Bilbo's hobbit hole. And, and there, are, there are other 
uh, features that you miss out on when you skip over that. For, for example, I was thinking about this one this week. Um, Tolkien is writing in the Christian tradition. You have Thor and Oakenshield, this dispossessed warrior king who plays a harp, singing a song of lament that rests hope in a mountain as he's guided by a prophet-like figure. And, and you start to see there's a transposition of David in, in the Psalms into the Hobbit that helps me then read the Hobbit better as I start to feel the, the lament and longing and dispossession that I know in a truer and better way in, in the Bible, in, in the stories. And if you cut out the, you know, the, the song at the beginning of the Hobbit, you're, you are not getting the story. You're, you're getting an addition of this story. And, and what I'm getting at is we try to do that with the Bible sometimes wrongly and say, well, we can just put into like a proposition of, oh, well, we, we read about the Exodus and, and the crossing of the Red Sea. And now you have this song of Moses. Well, let's just put this down to its bare bones and say, Moses is just singing about what happened. And let's skip that text and move on to the next one. Well, you're missing something from the story. The narrative is doing something, and, and now you've lost it. So, so even though there's the danger of treating narrative improperly, by looking at the Bible as narrative, I think it gives value to every single piece of the Bible in a way that we might otherwise discount. So that, that's one upshot. The second, by observing the biblical story, we gain the, the biblical author's perspective on the world. They're giving a theological interpretation of the events of the world. And as we grasp onto their view of the world, our view of the world starts to change. And as Hamilton says, if we get a glimpse of their view of the world, we get a, a glimpse of the world as it actually is. So in involving ourselves in this biblical story helps us form what we might call a worldview or a social imaginary that's a true telling of the story of the world. All right. Comments or questions up to that point? We have just a couple minutes, and I want to make one last point. Steve. Yeah, so we'll look at the canon of Scripture, all the books of the Bible, and say, this is God's authoritative, inspired word for me. Um, but then when we, we can start to say, well, I mean, that's in there, but it's not as important. It's like the red-letter edition of the Bible, where all we really need in the Gospels are Jesus' words, the red stuff. And we start to create a Bible that's less than the, the full scripture. Yeah, we pick and choose what we want, and we make that more important than the other thing. Yeah. yeah. I heard some of that type of thinking this week, and I was like, oh, maybe cringe. It's because you're rejecting the whole narrative. It's like, well, but it's only the red letters that are really yeah. important. Yeah, yeah, that's awful. Um, okay, I, I want to make one final point about narrative. And that is narrative brings with it the necessity of surprise. And, it, and this is, I'm setting us up for next week as I try to talk about the framework of the Bible because there, there's a way of reading the Bible that rejects surprise. One way of reading the Bible in, in Israel's history, we can go back to a book like um, Acts or Ephesians where, where you see Jews refusing to be surprised by God in the story of their history in the inclusion of Gentiles. Um, there's also a dispensational reading of the Bible that refuses to be surprised and demands a flat reading of the story throughout. And, and it will not allow the surprise that Jesus brings and, and that other authors bring to actually happen. And when, when we get into next week on the framework of the story, 
this, this is an important piece of it. Because if we start to look at the Bible as a narrative, we start to say, not only is surprise inherent in stories, but the reader must be willing to be surprised. So quoting from this guy, Brandon Sanderson's novel, Stormlight, in the epilogue, this guy, Wit, is searching for an audience to tell a story to you. And along the way, he's describing the artist's storytelling, which is ironic in the setting because this is happening to him. Okay, so storytelling, he said, is essentially about cheating. You use the same dirty tricks for storytelling that you do for fighting in an alley. Get someone looking for the wrong direction so you can clock them across the face. Get them to anticipate a punch and brace themselves so you can reposition. Always hit them when they aren't prepared. The, the, now, the Bible, unlike other stories that are not true, is true. But, but there is a surprise that happens that clocks us across the face. And if we're not willing to be surprised, then, then we flatten it out and, and we don't treat the Bible as the story that it is. And in fact, we take away from Jesus's own telling of the story. I mean, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to interpret the Bible. They show us how to interpret the Bible. And, and if we aren't willing to enter into the surprise of their interpretation, we're flattening out the Bible in a way that's really unhelpful. Of course, the greatest surprise is, is that, as Paul records in 2 Corinthians 2.20, that every one of God's promises is yes in him. That's the biggest surprise. Um, and the result in, in welcoming that surprise involves saying amen to the glory of God. And that's what Paul prescribes in 2 Corinthians 2.20. But all of that to say, in, in the, by nature of the story, there's surprise that happens. And this is not new to the New Testament. This happens all the way along. As you see Yahweh, God himself, reinterpreting earlier law codes. So I, I put a list of references there on page 9 for you. But even within the Pentateuch, law is given, situation happens, and there's a surprising reinterpretation of the law or, or a different application of it or a giving of a law that seems to contradict it. Well, there's surprise woven into the earliest parts of the Bible. Um, even before that, when you think about the blessing on the firstborn and the surprise that's where things are, are turned about by God's design, whether it's through the blessing of um, Isaac's sons or the blessing of Joseph's sons or Jacob's sons, where, where blessing is turned around. Well, there's surprise woven throughout the Bible. And as we look at it as narrative, we need to be prepared to receive that surprise. We have to end there, but I, I think hopefully it's clear. The Bible is a story that interprets events. It requires interpretation, but it doesn't end there. It provides a script that we live by. So we, we enter into the story, and we're in this weird spot between the, like the third act and in, in the end of the story. But we know the end of the story. And so even though there's not instruction for you for every second of your life and everything you'll face, you, you look what's at what's behind, you look at what's coming, and you have an interpretation of how you ought to live, live and understand life now. Let me pray, and if you want to talk afterwards, you can, but we should end here. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the story that it tells. That's the true story, the true interpretation of the, the events of the world and your working in the world and who we are. We pray that we would receive this, that we would embody it and live it out as a script that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.